Well, please, dear saints, strengthen your Bibles this evening to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, we'll read the first 11 verses together before turning to our catechism to Lord's Day 32. Second Peter chapter 1, being at verse 1, this is God's holy word. Simon Peter, an apostle, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent, to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is God's holy word. May bless it to our hearts as we meditate upon it this evening. Now let's also turn our bulletin handouts to Lord's Day 32. Lord's Day 32 introduces us to a new section in the Catechism as we begin to consider this evening how it is that God would now have us to live and pray in light of the redemption which he has accomplished for us. And so from the very outset, we are reminded again of those three things that we have to know if we want to live and if we want to die in the joy of Christian comfort. We need to know how great our sins and misery are. We need to know how we've been delivered from all our sin and misery. And we need to know how we are to thank God for such deliverance as we come to learn at sin salvation service or guilt grace gratitude we enter into the world this evening of christian gratitude reading these questions and answers responsively question 86 since we have been delivered from our misery by grace through christ without any merit of our own why then should we still do good works because christ having redeemed us by his blood is also renewing us by his spirit into his image, so that with our whole lives we may show that we are thankful to God for his benefits and that he may be praised through us. And further, so that we may be assured of our faith by its fruits and by our godly living, our neighbors may be won over to Christ. Question 87. Can those be saved who do not turn to God from their ungrateful and unrepentant ways? By no means. Scripture tells us that no unchaste person, no idolater, adulterer, thief, no covetous person, no drunkard, slanderer, robber, or the like 
will inherit the kingdom of God. This indeed is the church's confession. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, I'd like to begin this evening by inviting you to consider the question, what is salvation really all about? What is salvation really all about, and what does it look like in the life of the believer here and now? What I'd like to suggest to you this evening, and what I believe the Word of God teaches us, is that salvation is not merely about telling us what it is that we've been saved from, namely the power of sin and death, but salvation is also about telling us what it is that we've been saved for, namely that you and I should become partakers of the divine nature, having such communion with Christ that we begin more and more to to love what he loves, to hate what he hates, to will exactly what it is that, that he wills. We need to see this evening, dear saints, is that the gospel is not only about our having been forgiven. That, of course, is a big part of the gospel, but that's not all of it. Nor is the gospel nearly a promise of a future pie in the sky. It's not just a a promise that's confined entirely to the future. But salvation is about being made new again here and now. Salvation is all about being made into new creations in Christ Jesus. Salvation is about recognizing here and now in our lives today that what the apostle Peter has written is as true for us today as it was for his first century readers some 2,000 years ago. Christ's divine power has been granted to us, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. No longer do we need to rely on our own fleshly resources because new spiritual resources are now at our disposal. Spiritual resources which fuel a life of faith and faithfulness to the God of our salvation. For the grace of God has appeared, says the Apostle Paul, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age as we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people, for his own possession, a people who are zealous for good works. And this is what our catechism is getting at here in Lord's Day 32 as, begin, as we begin to consider what the new life in Christ looks like. In light of the grace of God which has appeared, bringing salvation to you and me, God calls us to, to live new lives in grateful obedience. And so our catechism here in Lord's Day 32 is really picking up where Lord's Day 24 left off. Lord's Days 25 through 30, of course, brought us through that explanation of how it is that God communicates His grace to us. He does that through the preaching of the gospel and through the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And then we saw in Lord's Day 31 how Christ has been pleased to to use the church, to use the ministers of the word and and the elders of the church to to open and close the kingdom of heaven through the preaching of the gospel and through Christian discipline unto repentance. But before those Lord's Days, Lord's Days 5 through 24 spelled out for us in great detail how it is that, that God has provided the answer to our misery. 
According to the riches of his grace, God provided a mediator in the Lord Jesus Christ, true God and true man, so that by the power of his divinity, he might bear in his humanity the the wrath of God, the full weight of the curse of God against sin, and so earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. In virtue of this mediator, we came to know God as our loving and caring Father. Through this meter, we came to know Christ as the great deliverer. We came to know also the Spirit as our strong comforter. And then we came to the pinnacle, to the very highest point of the gospel mountain, Lord's Day 23. What, what good does it do you to believe all this? And there we confessed, in Christ I am right with God. The Catechism asked us, how is it that you are right with God? And there we came to the glorious answer only by true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments and never having kept any of them. And even though my conscience accuses me of still being inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, out of sheer grace, without any merit of our own, God has granted to us the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, holiness, and obedience of Christ as if we had never sinned nor been sinners, as if you and I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. But then Lord's Day 24 anticipated the objection that might come our way. The objection is this, if, if God's grace is this lavish, if salvation really is all by grace alone, then, then won't that lead to people living indifferent and, and wicked lives? Perhaps you remember what the answer was that our catechism gave us. By no means. It is impossible for those who are grafted into Christ by true faith. It is impossible for them not to produce fruits of gratitude. And that's where our catechism picks up the conversation this evening. Why do we still have to do good works? How, how do we reconcile the gift of God's free grace and and that gospel word that comes to the sinner and says done how do we reconcile that word with the subsequent call of the gospel which is to go and do to to go and live in newness of life and obedience of faith we find the answer here in Lord's Day 32 and we discover here in our catechisms that the the do of the Christian life is is grounded in the done of Christ it is empowered and and fueled by the ongoing doing of his spirit. Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, is also renewing us by his spirit into his own image. And so if we were to summarize Lord's Day 32, if we were to summarize the, the entire thrust of this third section of the catechism, we might put it this way, God's grace always leads to godliness. God's grace always leads to godliness once God delivers the sinner from the power of sin. He would not have that sinner to go on wallowing in the misery of that sin. But just as it was for the prodigal son, when he came to realize that he had a benevolent father who loved him and cared for him, the gospel bids us to to rise up out of the, the pigsty of our sinful lifestyles and to run to the father, to walk with the father in newness of life. The gospel tells us that knowing whose you are is what now defines who you are. And who you are, who you really are in the Lord Jesus Christ ought to have a profound impact on the way you are. 
Knowing whose you are now defines who you are. And who you are ought to have a profound impact on the way you are. God's grace always, always, always leads to godliness. As we work our way through this Lord's Day, I invite you to consider three things with me this evening. First of all, the renewal that Christ works in us. Secondly, the response that Christ wills for us. And then finally, the rest that Christ has won for us. Notice how the answer our catechism gives us to the question about why it is that we must still do good works is firmly grounded in the gospel of God's grace. Unlike every other false religion or pagan religion in the world, our catechism doesn't teach us that, that the Christian has to do good works in order to, to gain God's favor or approval because we've already received that in Christ. Our catechism, unlike the, the catechism of the Roman Catholic Church, doesn't teach this heretical doctrine that God somehow brings you in by justification, but, but you have to keep yourself in by sanctification. Not at all. But Christ has earned this favor and approval already for us. This is why Peter addresses his readers the way he does to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Grace has already been won for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so doing good works is not somehow a trying to, to pay God back because God didn't give us his son on loan but rather God gave him freely. Isn't that precisely the Apostle Paul is, is getting at in those cherished words of Romans chapter 8? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him also graciously give us all things? So if good works aren't about earning God's approval, then what are they about? Why do we still have to do them? We can be very thankful tonight that the answer our catechism gives us is firmly grounded in God's grace. To be sure, we have been delivered from our misery by grace through Christ without any merit of our own. The answer is almost already given to us in the question. But Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, is also renewing us by his spirit. He's also renewing us by his spirit into his own image. In other words, boys and girls, what the catechism is teaching us is that God loves us enough to change us. God loves us enough to change us. He loves us enough to not to have us stay the way we were when we were still enslaved to sin. But when God redeems us, he also changes us into the likeness of his son. Whereas in our old life in sin, we weren't even able to honor God or give thanks to him. In our new life in Christ, God has given us new hearts and new minds to, to live as we were made to live. As Peter tells us, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, to the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped that corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And of course, when we read these words, we can't help but think that the Apostle Peter must be speaking from his own personal experience because Peter too was a man who stood in great need of the redeeming blood and renewing work of Christ's spirit. 
For as we all know, despite the fact that it was Peter who boldly proclaimed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, as we heard last Sunday, Peter was not an apostle without his failures. As our Lord was dying, Peter was denying him, denying Christ not once but three times. Later on, when Peter had the chance to to show the reality that God had broken down that dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. When, when the Jews came, Peter departed from the Gentiles lest he be seen by the Jews out of fear of man. And Paul had to, had to rebuke him for that in Galatians chapter 2. And all this is simply to say that even Peter, as a servant of Christ, as one of Christ's apostles, even Peter, needed the grace of Christ to shape and to mold him into the man that Christ would have him to be. And so as he speaks to these first century Christians who in the midst of their suffering are, are being constantly tempted to, to turn their backs on the Lord, Peter is no doubt speaking also to himself, reminding them and reminding us that as we seek to live lives of obedience to Christ, we seek to, to take up our cross and to, and to follow him, We don't have to do so by relying on our own strength. We don't have to take heed of that call relying on our own resources. But God not only commands, but he gives what he commands. This is the good news of the gospel that we confess here in Lord's Day 32. The underlying reason for why we, we have to do good works is because Christ is still working in us. Because he not only redeemed us, but he also renews us by his spirit. And so despite what some have alleged that salvation by grace makes us either complacent or careless, the Catechism says, by no means. By no means is that the case. But as Jesus says in John chapter 15, whoever abides in me, he it is that bears much fruit. And by this, my Father is glorified that you should bear much fruit. And so proved, be my disciples. But what is this? look like. Our catechism goes on to teach us that when Christ redeems us or renews us by his spirit, he does that so that by our whole lives we may show that we are thankful to God for all his benefits and that he may be praised through us. It's a reminder of those words of the Psalms in Psalm 16, words which we'll sing in a few moments. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my plea for mercy. Because he has inclined his ear, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me, the psalmist asks. And this congregation needs to be the prayer and the song of our lives. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? How shall my soul, by grace restored, give worthy thanks, O Lord, to thee? The Apostle Paul gets at the same concern in Romans chapter 6 when he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And there too Paul says, By no means. How can we who have died to sin still go on living in it? Boys and girls, the Christian is someone who has died to sin. The Christian is someone who has been set free from the tyrannical power of sin. As Paul said in Galatians 2 verse 20, so the Christian can say, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who who lives in me. 
And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you not know, says Paul, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In no way does God's grace warrant license to continue in our sin. But boys and girls, what the Bible teaches is that God's grace always leads to godliness. God's grace always, always, always produces fruits of gratitude. What again did Jesus say to his disciples time and again? If you love me, then you'll do what? If you love me, then you will keep my commandments. This is why you and I must devote ourselves to doing good works, that by our whole lives we might show our thankfulness to God in order that he might be praised through us. This is your mentality, people of God, when you wake up in the morning, not just Sunday morning, but every morning. That is the Christian duty, to glorify God, that through our whole life he might be praised through us. Apostle Paul says, by grace you've been saved through faith in Ephesians 2. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, says Paul. Created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. Or as we learn from question answer one of the Westminster Catechism, what is the, the chief end of man? And the chief end of man, of course, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This is why we've been placed here on the earth. And the good news of the gospel of Christ is that although we and Adam made ourselves incapable of doing the very thing we were made to do, where Adam failed, Christ prevailed. And whatever was robbed, and not robbed from us in Adam has been restored to us in Christ. This is what the Apostle Peter is getting at when he goes on to say in verses 5 through 7, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. In virtue of his very precious and great promises, God calls us to respond in gratitude, to, to supplement our faith with, with virtue, which is to, to supplement our faith by more and more growing in, in Christ-like character. So we are so clothed in Christ's likeness that when others see us, that it's very evident to them that Christ is, is dwelling in you. We begin to exercise self-control, no longer being controlled by the passions of the flesh, but, but exercising self-mastery over them. Growing in godliness and brotherly affection and love for one another and so on. In this way, God is praised through us. In this way, we live in light of our chief end, to glorify Him and to enjoy Him forever. 
In this way, not only is God praised to us, but also as we live in light of the grace that's been given to us by our godly living, says our catechism, our neighbors may be won over to Christ. Our good works have an evangelistic function, people of God. By our godly living, a, a watching world is made curious and even desires about the hope that is within us. Let's consider what our Lord himself said in his sermon on the mount. He said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Why? That they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What Christ is saying is that we exist here to praise God and to serve our neighbors. A light has no purpose except for that it brings light to the darkness. Salt has no purpose except that it brings flavor and and preservation to that which it's placed on. And so it is to be for us as well. We are to let our light shine before others so that they may see our good works and give glory to God. Consider the words of the Apostle Peter in chapter 2 of his first letter. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, those passions that wage war against your souls. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that even when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. Or consider what he goes on to say in the next chapter, in chapter 3. What, what happens when, when the gospel comes to, to a new place and, and one spouse comes to believe in Christ, another one doesn't yet believe? In particular, the question was, what, what's a Christian wife to do? In a society where, where wives were possessions of their husband, what's she to do when, when she now believes in Christ and her husband doesn't? And there Peter says, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. So that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without a word. By the conduct of their wives. When they see their purity and reverence in their lifestyle. The Bible teaches us, boys and girls, that God is pleased to when our neighbors and those around us over to Christ by our godly living. It's a lesson that we can't learn too soon or too young. And so, boys and girls, when you're playing outside with the neighbor kids on your street, you need to remember that, that when you're playing with others or, when, or how you talk, that you're bearing witness to the fact that you belong to the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and that, that God might very well be maybe pleased through your play, through your talk, to bring those neighbor kids to faith in Christ. For all these reasons and many more, the apostle Peter goes on to say, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent. Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The apostle concludes his exhortation with yet another promise, a promise of of entering into the eternal kingdom of Christ. And so we consider finally tonight the rest that Christ has won for us. 
according to the Bible, people of God, another reason for why Christians should do good works is so that we may be assured of our faith by its fruits. Again, God would not have us to live lives with question marks over our heads or printed on our hearts, but God is gracious to give us many avenues to assurance. And we confess here in our catechism is that one of those avenues to assurance comes to us in the way of, of examining the fruits of our faith. What Lord's Day 32 is getting at here is that there is a correlation between the assurance of faith and the fruitfulness of faith. The plain meaning of these words, right, Sermon Veldkamp, must be that the assurance of faith increases as fruitfulness increases. These two keep peace with one another. As Christ works in our hearts by his renewing spirit, and as we begin to walk in his footsteps, he assures us that we really are united with him. This is the rest that Christ has won for us. But as is often the case, the promise of rest also comes with a word of warning. Question 87 asks us, can those be saved who, who do not turn to God? Who do not turn away from their ungrateful and, and unrepentant ways? And we confess by no means. The scripture tells us that no unchaste person, no idolater, adulterer, thief, or covetous person, no drunkard, slanderer, robber, or the like will inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, dear brothers and sisters, Christ calls us to take the Christian life very seriously. The Christian life is not a life of spiritual complacency. The Christian life is not a life of carelessness. It is not a life of being content to continue and wallow in the misery of your sin. But it is a life of pursuing godliness, of pursuing goodness, righteousness, and holiness. And so embedded in the words, in the apostles' words of encouragement is also the unspoken word of warning. The God who, who calls us and elects us into himself yet requires a, a conscious and an active response on our part. It is indeed incumbent upon every believer to be all the more diligent to confirm his calling and election. It is incumbent upon every believer to live in light of the reality that he has been cleansed from former sins, that it is now possible to, to walk in newness of life. God's grace must always, always, always lead to godliness. Scriptures teach us that no that no one who does not turn to God, who remains ungrateful and unrepentant, shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. No unchaste person, no idolater or adulterer or thief or covetous person, no drunkard, slanderer, or robber or the like, will inherit the kingdom of heaven. A word of warning to be sure. If any of you feel as though you're still enslaved to any of those sins, then you can also know tonight that such are the very same kinds of persons whom God loves to save. And so I would bid you to look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Look to him on the cross as he dies a sinner's death, as he dies for unchaste persons, as he dies for adulterous and idolatrous persons, as he dies for the drunkards and the slanderers and the robbers and the like. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ who promises to grant you all things that pertain to life and godliness. This is what he promises in his word. 
And so Peter says, be all the more diligent. Be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before you again in this evening hour to give you thanks for the great grace, the grace that is indeed greater than all our sin. Father, we give you thanks that you're a benevolent Father who, when you redeem us, you don't leave us in our sin. But you lift us up out of the muck and the mire, that you set us on a rock, that you give us new purpose and new meaning in a world that is so confused by meaninglessness that doesn't know why they exist and why they're here. Father, we, we thank you that you are a God who continues to work in his people, that why do you redeem us, but you continue to renew us more and more by Christ's spirit. And so, Father, in light of this great grace, we pray that you would cause us to live in great gratitude, that we would not live stingy lives of keeping our gifts to ourselves, but that we would bask in the grace of Christ and in so basking live in grateful obedience to him. Father, we pray that by our godly living, our neighbors would indeed be won over to Christ, that others would indeed see our good deeds and give glory to God on the day of visitation. Father, keep pressed upon our hearts the reality that we don't exist here for ourselves, but we exist to praise you and we exist for the world around us to bring them light to bring them the flavor of the gospel. Father, as we grow in sanctification and holiness, we pray that you'd also assure us of our faith by its fruits. We thank you, God, for the promise that whoever abides in Christ, he it is that does bear much fruit. All these things we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake.